So welcome everyone. Um, if you're new to Ebenezer, um, my name is Leighton Erickson. I serve as lead pastor here, and we're currently working our way through a book of the Bible as we like to do here at Ebenezer. Now, there's a curse uh, and a blessing to do this. Uh, the blessing is that for those of us who preach, when we finish on, let's say, verse 4 one week, we know that next week we start in verse 5, and so we know where we're going. Uh, the curse is that sometimes that next verse is something we'd prefer not to speak on, and now we can't avoid it. Uh, such is the case for us this morning as we look through 1 Timothy. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, last week we ended up on verse uh, 8 of chapter 2, which means I have the joy this morning uh, preaching through uh, one of the most challenging, controversial, hotly debated passages in Scripture especially when it's viewed in, in our local and uh, our, in our context here today. And so I think you're going to discover that as we read the Scripture. So let, uh, let me pray that God would be gracious to me <laughs> and, and to you as well, and that we would have our eyes open. So Father, um, it is always our desire that we would hear from you. We know that your word is true. We know that your word uh, speaks to us. And we want to understand it in its fullness and obey it in its fullness. And so even today as we come together, Father, may, may your grace be upon us. May you open our spiritual eyes and protect us from things that, that aren't from you um, as I teach. And so we, we ask you to be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's... Uh, we, uh, confession. My sermon today is long. I, I, there's no way of... Uh, of saying anything else, okay? So I'll try and get through it as, as timely as possible. It's going to be a little bit longer than normal, but I, I don't know how else I can kind of maneuver my way through what we have to do today, so uh, just bear with me on that. So let's just jump right in. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. Let's uh, read this together, and then you'll know what I'm talking about. Here we go. I also want the women... <laughs> so you know I'm already in a bad position up here. I've asked Chris to zip-tie the first ten rows of chairs so that, uh, that I'm safer up here. I'll start again. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with the good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. <laughs> okay, so now you know why I look nervous up here this morning. Actually, I'm not. So um, my question to you is, when I read that passage of Scripture, I'm curious, what, what was your first reaction to it? Uh, maybe you sat there this morning and you're thinking, is this still a thing? Because in the real world in 2023, this is not an issue at all. So this is something that's cultural and irrelevant to us. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh my goodness, these verses come across as really oppressive towards women, even misogynistic. Is that Paul's intent? Or maybe you're thinking, uh, this, this teaching is so countercultural that if we followed it or if it you know, got out to the real world via Twitter or something like that, uh, it would hurt the church and it would hurt our witness, especially to the female population who don't know Jesus as their Savior. And some of you might be sitting here today thinking, if this is what the Bible says, why aren't we following it? Well, I can assure you that the role of women in leadership is a very much a topic of discussion across churches and denominations, especially in the, in the evangelical community. Just before the pandemic hit, the denomination that we're part of, which is called the Baptist General Conference of Canada, uh, did a survey regarding the role of women in leadership. And so it's very much on our minds as a denomination. Now, I actually brought the results with you just so you can get a sense of, of what uh, we say as a denomination in this regard. 
I think it was um, 66 pastors uh, responded. Uh, we have a smaller denomination of just over 100 churches, so about, a, about a two-thirds of the pastors responded. And so here's the questions that, that were asked, and I'll show you the results. Uh, the first one is, do you support having women leading in public worship service? Okay, and so you don't have to do the math. Quickly, I'll do that for you. 85% of the people responding said, no problem. Okay, that's good. Only 4% had an issue with that. Okay, and so this morning, I don't know if you noticed, but we had a, a woman leading our worship service, and I'm totally fine with that. Um, the second question was, uh, do you support having women on the church board? And uh, now we're starting to see, you know, things tighten up just a bit, but... Uh, 82% of the respondents says, yeah, it's fine to have a woman on the church board. 13% either disagreed or strongly disagreed. Now, at Ebenezer, we have women on our church board, just so you know that. Um, the next question was, um, do you support having women as a paid staff in a pastoral role? In other words, not administrative. Now, again, we're starting to see some, some closing. 67% uh, said they were okay with that, and 26% said they had a problem with that. Uh, three more. Uh, do you support having, uh, having women um, in serving the, with the title of director or coordinator? Now, I'm going to qualify this one. This is my own interpretation of this question. I think what, it, what it's saying is, are you okay with a woman functioning like a pastor, just not being called one? <laughs> That's kind of how I view that. Like, we're okay with the function, just not with the title. And uh, overwhelmingly, 78% uh, says, yeah, we're fine with that. Only 6% disagreed with that. And they might have actually been in favor of, of a title, so it might not be a negative thing. Uh, do you, next one is, um, do you support having women uh, serving with the title of pastor? And again, things begin to tighten up. 60% of respondents said, yes, we're okay with that. Again, at Ebenezer, we call our women ministry leaders who are on staff, pastors. So you know how I voted in this one. Uh, but 30%, which is significant, uh, had a problem with calling uh, women in ministry pastors. And then the last one, which is interesting to me, but um, even having said all that, because the overwhelming responses towards were okay with this, then the question was, was asked, um, do you support having women as a lead pastor of a church? And here there's a, there's a definite shift in thinking. Uh, this time, 62% of the respondents said no, and only 25% said they were okay with that. So that's kind of, you know, where we're at is, as a baseline just for us, you know, to think about today. Now, as I said, we have, we have lots to cover, so let's just jump in to our text this morning, and let's look right at verse 9 and 10, which also happens to be the easiest verses to understand in this morning's passage. I'm not going to take the time to read all the verses, but you can see them uh, behind me, hopefully. And this is verse 9 where it talks about dressing modestly and decency and so on. So, okay, uh, ladies, uh, are you ready to take some notes this morning? In the original language of the Bible, here's what Paul is saying to you. No more makeup, no more jewelry, no fancy hairdos, no skin showing above the ankle or below the neck. <laughs> I think that went pretty well. I, I, I don't know about you. Yeah, that's modesty, decency, and, and propriety. It's a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. And it went a little bit better than I thought, too. Okay, so uh, all joking aside, all joking aside, um, Paul is not trying to issue a dress code for women in the church in this passage. So you can relax and keep the chairs where they are. Um, the clue to Paul's intent is found in the opening words where Paul says, I also want, which means that we need to go back in the text to see what he wanted first and then connect these two thoughts together. And in verse 8, which is a verse we looked at at the end of last week, we see that Paul says he wants men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, of course, uh, Paul is not just calling men to, to physically lift their hands in prayer, which actually was the common practice of that day. Rather, what Paul is wanting them to understand is that their, their physical appearance and posture of raised hands is meant to be a reflection 
of what is actually happening on the inside. And so God wanted their hearts uh, to be clean and pure and holy as they go before him. He wanted their minds to be ready to, to listen and to receive. That's the posture of receiving. And he wanted their hands and feet to be ready to obey in humble submission. So it, it's less about this, and it's more about what's happening inside. And then he says, likewise, or in the same way, he wants women to understand that their outward appearance should also be a reflection of what's happening on the inside. And he identifies two things in particular. First is this expression of modesty and discretion in one's appearance, which, which I talked about in a joking way. But again, Paul is not against women dressing fashionably or trying to look good, but he is saying this. He's saying, women, don't spend all your time and effort on the external things in your life, and in doing so, you actually neglect the internal things which ultimately have more value. Uh, Peter also talks about this, and in 1 Peter chapter 3, this is what he says. He says, women, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as in elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is great, of great worth in the, in the eyes of God. So um, even though the world um, highly, highly values externals, in God's family, it's just not what you have going on on the outside that matters. It's what's going on on the inside that actually matters the most. Now, the challenge is, and I, and I, I can appreciate this, that we live in a culture then that not only values external beauty, it actually celebrates it. And, and that's why uh, we tend to invest much time and money to be beautiful. And that's why for those of you, of us who are older, we try hard to hold on to our beauty and to hold off age. You know, we have the feeling that the gray hair is no longer this crown of honor. It's something that we, that we cover. Now, remember in, in um, Proverbs 31, what it says there, there in verse 30, it says, charm is deceptive and beauty is what? Fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, um, but, uh, but your external beauty, even for those that, that are young and in college and career and in the prime of your life, your external beauty is not going to last forever. At, at some point, it's going to fade away. And that's why Paul encourages a, a second point, which is that they should uh, adorn themselves with good deeds. In other words, uh, he's saying the inner beauty of your heart should shine through you by the works you do on the outside and, and those works which are pleasing to the Lord. So what it's saying here is, men, your, your posture of prayer should reflect your humble heart. And women, uh, let your external beauty reflect uh, what's happening in your, your love and alignment and service of the, of the Lord. That's what it's saying there. Okay? Easy peasy. That's the first verses. You with me? Okay, this is why you came, is the next few verses. I'll read them again. A woman should learn quiet in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and Eve, and Adam was not the one who was deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Again, these are, this is the reason I asked Chris to zip tie the, the chairs down this morning. Now, uh, before we actually look at these verses in, in some more detail, I'm going to actually take quite a bit of time, and I'm just going to, I'm going to circle around these for, for a bit, um, because I think in the end, when we get to the verses, it's going to bring some quicker understanding to what they're actually saying. And I want to begin with just a few core convictions. Uh, first is this, is that as believers, our final authority is always Scripture. It's not our opinion. It's not our insightful, wise, great reasoning and logic. It's not how we personally feel about a subject. It's not uh, what the culture is saying about things with all the trends and norms and shifts in, that are in there. Uh, scripture instructs us because it is God's Word and His Word is truth, period. Now, this means our priority is to strive to understand God's, what God's Word says and then submit to it 
even if it goes against the perspectives held by culture, or even if it goes against our own logic or feelings, or against the practice and teaching of the church tradition. So, for example, you know, I'll freely admit when I read this pass passage of Scripture that I, that I did, there, there's some uneasiness in, in me about what it's saying. However, um, I had to really wrestle even again this week to say, well, what does the Scripture actually say? Because even if I feel uneasy, if that's what the Bible's saying, we need to respond to it. And we, um, we need to adjust our views and our perspectives to the truth of Scripture, not try and adjust Scripture to our truth and perspectives. And that's an error that's being made lots today. A second conviction is that um, as we seek to interpret Scripture, we need to realize that we actually all come to Scripture with some, some lenses or some biases about it. And so we're, we're, those lenses are shaped by uh, what we've seen modeled. They're, they're shaped by what we've been taught. They're shaped by the experiences we've had. They're shaped by the culture in which we live. The time we were born, boomer, buster, exer, you know, all those things shape and influence our view of Scripture. Now, for example, just one quick example. Most people in North America, when they read the Scriptures through, they, they read them from a very individualistic perspective. It's, what does the Bible say to me? Or, what is God's promise for me? But the truth is, is that Scripture is really written for us. It, it has, a, it has a, a communal, collective view to it, not just about me. Now, I read the Bible through a lens, and that lens, even though maybe I don't like to think so, is probably biased, and it influences me. So that's a, a white, middle-class, educated, conservative, evangelical, Canadian male pastor, right? That influences me. But so does your lens, and you have one. And so, for, for example, if you grew up in a church that was more legalistic, you might view Scripture through the lens of legalism or justice in, in a negative sense. Uh, if you're someone who has a heart for the world and you see all the injustices out there, you're going to read the Scripture through the, through the lens of social justice. If you're a person that has ex experienced the wonderful grace of Jesus in your life and you've just been overwhelmed by that, when you read the Scripture, guess what you're going to see? The wonderful grace of Jesus. And if you grew up and your situation is one of brokenness and dysfunction, then when you read the Scripture, you might be tainted by your lens of brokenness. You know, for example, when we talk about how, how good and loving our Heavenly Father is, if you had a father that abused you or abandoned you, that's a negative thing. And your view is, how can I trust a God who's, who says he's his father when I know what my father was like? It taints us. So we all have lenses that we look at Scripture with, and, and, and the, the challenge for us then is, is to work hard to pull back those lenses so we can actually see what the Scripture is saying. Third thing I want to say in terms of a conviction is that not uh, all matters of doctrine or Scripture and life have equal importance in all things. There are actually a primary or first things that have the utmost importance and, and really require conformity and unity for a body of Christ like Ebenezer. And those would be things like, for example, the authority of Scripture. Uh, they would be things like the holiness of God or the personal work of Jesus Christ. Or they would be things like the nature of atonement, those, those things that, that we're not willing to negotiate on. They define who we are. And so, so we actually hold those things with, with tight fists. But there are also uh, secondary things that uh, good, godly, and very educated and smart people view differently. You know, for example, things like baptism, uh, things like end times, things like um, our view of the filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit, or maybe even creation and science as it relates to the Bible. You know, those are secondary things. And then there's also something called tertiary issues, which are, are third rank or greater. And those are things like the style of music or the Bible translation that you use or your clothing attire or your stance on vaccines. Too soon? <laughs> I, just wondering. Okay, I got your attention again. 
Okay, and I'm serious about that, though. Um, now, of course, a church is at risk any time they fail to hold tightly to primary things. They're at risk when they fail to do that. But it, a church is also at risk if they make everything primary and everything becomes black and white and right and wrong. They're also at risk in that. You see, a, a church like ours, we should, we, should, we should find unity in the primary things. Those are the things that hold us together. Those are the things that we can all agree on that are non-negotiable for us. And we should also be able to celebrate the diversity that's in our body as we chose to choose to hold second things and tertiary things with, with open hands and saying, you know, we agree to disagree, but I still love you and we can still serve together. Those are the secondary issues. I would go one step further that, um, uh, and I was at a conference just before the pandemic broke out, and a person said something that stuck with me. He said, if you try to make, make uh, second things and third things and ninth things first things, you will never have unity in your church. Because we're not going to agree on everything, no matter how hard we try. And if that's a standard, then we're going to be at odds with each other. We can't do that. Unity is found in first things and primary things. That's where we hold them tight. So, um, the question then is, where does this issue of women in ministry fit in? Is it a primary thing? Is it a secondary thing? Is it a tertiary thing? How would you answer that? There are some uh, who, and believe me, I know this on a very personal level, there are some that, that hold this as a very, very primary issue. And even though I might disagree with them, I respect their, their, um, their love for the Lord and their desire to honor God. And we're all trying to come at things with Scripture, and we just happen to see things a bit differently on, on some areas. For them, they believe that, that um, believe God's Word speaks with absolute clarity on this topic in passages like 1 Timothy. And so to ignore and disobey what is being said actually diminishes the authority of Scripture in our lives. And that's a, that's a primary thing, so therefore women in ministry becomes a primary thing. I don't view this as a primary issue but a secondary one, and for a number of reasons. And one of them is that simply there are many good, godly, educated people who have studied this topic in more depth than I have who have arrived at very, very different conclusions. And that spreads denominational boundaries. It, sp it, it spreads conservatism, liberalism. Like it, just, it just spreads over lots of things. Which, which means uh, this morning, um, as I speak now, and if you don't agree with what I'm going to say in the conclusions I draw, then we can still walk in harmony together, I hope. Besides, you can't say anything, you're supposed to be quiet. <laughs> I just... <laughs> too soon, I'll just... I'll put up the flag myself. Okay. Uh, so you know what I mean. Um, there are actually two basic camps in the theological realm in this area. And the one camp is what we call complementarian. And they are people that believe that, that although men and women have equal value in the eyes of the Lord, their roles are different and distinct in their physical family and also in their spiritual family, which means by, by design and, and function and God's plan, they are not permitted to do certain things. The egalitarian, which is the other theological perspective on this, uh, they are people who believe that in Christ there are no longer the same distinctions that there once were. And so male and female can be equal contributors in God's kingdom work and are not held back because of their, gen their gender. Now, just in case you're trying to think, well, okay, what campus is Leighton in? Um, I, I will say I'm, I don't totally fit into either camp. And I'm not trying to skirt the issue. I, I just think holding a dogmatic view on either thing is to deny some very compelling arguments on both sides. Okay, and so there's certain things about the, about the um, complementarian side that I go, yeah, we're, men and women are different, that's obvious. And there's certain things about the egalitarian side that I'm going, that, that makes sense. Um, historically, by the way, I'm, I, my background and training is a more complementarian view. 
Uh, but over the last several years, I have shifted more to an egalitarian view, although, again, as you're going to see this morning, it, it's hard to be dogmatic on these things. Now, to rightly understand uh, these verses in 1 Timothy, and also I'm going to include 1 Corinthians 14 here because Paul speaks about this issue in that setting as well. Different cities, different um, provinces, areas, uh, but, but both are, are spoken, I think, out of dysfunction. That gives you a clue of where I'm going. So there's dysfunction in, in the church in Ephesus where Timothy is, and there certainly is dysfunction in the church of Corinth. Um, so we, we want to, to see these things, and to do this, we need to see this in the context of the, of the, uh, original, uh, the original context when it was written, what was happening then in terms of the world. And also we want to view this in, in light of or in view of the entirety of Scripture, not just one little piece. So when you take a verse out of context, you can make it say whatever you want to. But when we bounce it out with what does the Bible actually say overall, it might open our eyes to some different things. So with that in mind, um, I'm, going to, I want, I'm going to go back to the beginning, and we're going to actually look at a few verses in, in the book of Genesis, which is the creation story, to try and help understand what is God's original design for maleness and for femaleness. And so Genesis 1.26, and again, hopefully it's on the screen behind you, uh, it says that, Then God said, Let us... Make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, I'm not, this, this could be a, a passage that, that deals with some of the gender dysphoria that's happening around. I'm, I'm not going to make it that this morning, but it, there is some connections to all these things. But what I want you to notice is that from these two verses, we see that God's design from the very beginning was, was that there was maleness and there was femaleness, and that, that when they came together, they were a more full reflection of the image of God. Okay? So what I'm saying is we actually desperately need each other in this. And if it's just me or a man... That is a partial reflection of the fullness of who God is. Male and female, he created them. Okay? Then as we continue to read in, in verse 28, we see of God's original plan or design for them. It says, God blessed them. Now notice again the plural. It doesn't say God blessed him. It says God blessed them and said to them, and then he lists all these things in that passage. So basically what's happening is God saying, saying to them that, that, that together, as a unit, reflecting the image of God better than you can as individuals, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and raise your children. I want you to, to cultivate and care for creation. I want you to rule over every living creature, and I want you to stand alongside each other as equal partners in life. Now again, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that there's not distinct roles because, uh, the, again, the world says if we're exactly the same, then there's no need for gender, right? There, there's distinctness here, male and female, but it, it, does, mean, it does mean that, that God has designed us with, with that uh, difference in those desires and those roles. Now, further, as we keep on moving on in, in Genesis chapter 2, 18, we see kind of what God's view is of our separateness versus our togetherness, and he says this, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so, again, it seems that, that, um, that God made male and female uh, for each other, and that when we come together under God in oneness, we reflect the strength and the compassion and the fullness of God's image in our lives and also to the world around us. Now, just before I leave that verse, there is a phrase there I want us to look at because um, I think it's... it's it's been misinterpreted, or we, we, we have a certain way of looking at it. And that is the, the, the word helper, and tied with it either before or after, depending on your version, is a suitable helper. Now, in the creation story, uh, after God created Adam, he said it's not good for him to be alone, and then, but he, there is no suitable helper found in all of creation. So he, he created Eve to become his suitable helper. And when we see the, the, that term helper, a lot of us, I think, have just uh, looked at this as uh, God created Eve 
to be a subordinate or servant uh, that where Adam was the leader in, in the family. And we actually further say that because in Genesis chapter 3, 16, it says, and he, meaning Adam or mankind, man, will rule over her, meaning Eve, or by extension, women. Okay, so we, we have that, that the man's going to rule over, so this is a subordinate. Uh, however, uh, before we, we draw that conclusion fully, just remember that, first of all, uh, this ruling over thing was actually happened after the fall. It was a consequence of the fall, not in God's original design. And what Paul's saying here, suitable helper, helper, that is before the fall happened. Secondly, the actual word helper appears 19 times in the Old Testament. And 16 of those times, helper refers to God. So not many of us would think that the God is our subordinate. Okay, so we have to be careful how we, we actually interpret this. So rather than looking at this verse as, you know, God made a suitable helper, i.e. subordinate servant, we should look at it this way. God made a complement, someone who is vital and necessary contributor in the other person's life. Okay, that's, that's the value that's happening here. Now, that's again not to say there's not a created order to follow uh, with different levels of responsibility and accountability, but in this text, it does not mean uh, servant. Okay, as we go on here, uh, chapter 3 tells a story then of how sin entered the world. And, and when that happened, it disrupted things. And uh, this is not from the Bible, this is me, but, but I, I think uh, that we've, we've drifted to two dysfunctional poles. Now, for, for guys, this is what I think that those poles are, those extremes. For guys, it's either dominance, and that's where we think that everything revolves around us, and we try to rule over everyone, especially our families. And we add to it because that's what God said we should do, okay? Or the other side of this is passivity. And I think actually this is the more common one than the dominance. That's where men disengage from the family, they disengage spiritually, and they neglect their God-given responsibilities uh, that, you know, to their families and beyond. And as proof in our culture, I don't know exact percentage, but, but you know how many families or, or how many children are father, come from fatherless families? Lots and lots of people, because men have checked out. They haven't done their responsibility. They, they've moved towards passivity. And neither of those things is a biblical picture of what God intended. Now, ladies, I, I think that this, the fall has Im impacted you, too. And again, this is, this is from me. It's not from the Bible, but it's just how I'm perceiving things. I think that there's two poles that you tend to shift towards. One is what I call reliance, and, and, that's, and that's where um, you, you fall, become susceptible to unhealthy, controlling relationships because you've bought a lie that says that your worth is found in another person. And so you'd rather accept dysfunctional authority than feel lost and alone in life. The other one is defiance. And defiance is, is where, where you, you're just your nature. Maybe some of you understand this. Your nature is like, I don't want to, no one's going to control me. I don't want to submit to anyone. And in, fact, in fact, the submission word is a new, new uh, swear word of the church, um, especially with, with women. So, so you don't want that. You want to get under the control of your parents, out of, out of the control of your parents. You don't want to be under the control of any man or any boss or any whatever. And uh, so you move that, and there's nothing wrong with being a strong, independent woman, for sure not, but when you want to be a strong, independent woman who submits to no one, that is defiance. And again, both of those things go against God's command. Um, so, find my place here again. Uh, Genesis uh, 3, so from Genesis 3 all the way to when Jesus enters or, uh, humanity, this brokenness and, this, um, and the consequences of sin have plagued humanity, which is, which is maybe why historically women have been um, abused, set aside, taken advantage of, neglected. But when Jesus entered humanity, he sought to restore all things, to right those things that have been wrong and broken, that have been brought on by, by the sin. And, and so 
it's no surprise that when he came, he began to restore maleness and femaleness again. Now, um, so let's, just, let's consider the place and the role of women in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, because that, that informs us. And remember again, in Jesus' day, um, women were not considered full members of society. They had few rights, if any. They were considered a possession of their father if they were single, or their husband if they were married. They received no formal education at all. And, and Jesus entered into that brokenness. And I want to suggest that, that his life and his ministry did more to restore the worth and place of women than anyone before him and anyone after him, including our politicians today. He continually challenged the cultural assumptions and practices of his day regarding women and their role in society and their relationships to men. Let me give you some examples of this that may seem subtle to you, but actually are huge. One of the things that we see about Jesus is he spoke to women in public. That's something a rabbi would never do. And in doing so, he elevated them out of their insignificance and the societal oppression, and he, and he gave them new value and worth. But not only did he speak to women... Uh, the Bible says that he called women friends and he invited them to sit under his teaching as, as his disciple. Again, this is something that no rabbi would ever do. And so we see a number of women in the New Testament who were considered Jesus' disciples. Mary Magdalene, Joanne, Susanna, Salome, Mary and Martha. In fact, Mary in Luke 10, you might remember the story, it says that, that she sat at Jesus' feet, by the way, which which automatically meant that she was one of his disciples while Mar Martha was busy doing things. And Jesus affirmed her for sitting at his feet and learning from him, saying, Mary, what you have chosen is best. Jesus even sent women out to represent him to others. Remember the woman at the well in, in John chapter 4? Jesus sent her into the town to be an evangelist for him to proclaim his greatness to her town people, including men. And even think about the resurrection. Who did, who did Jesus choose to reveal himself to first? It was a group of women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother James, Salome, and Joanna. And he sent them off to proclaim to the male disciples that he was alive. Jesus continually uh, threw off these, these cultural accepted perspectives on women, and he opened the door wide for women to join him in the movement of Jesus. Okay, what about then the early church? Um, were there women leaders in the early church? Well, yes, there were. And let me just show you this. A couple of examples. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God came upon followers of Jesus in this new and powerful and permanent way, the apostle Peter uh, stood up and, and declared the promises of God. And in doing so, he went back and he quoted the prophet Joel, who we studied just a while back. And in that prophecy, he says this, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit on those days and they will prophesy. Okay, this is where we kind of get the inclusiveness where it wasn't just men anymore, it was men and women because there was a new day under the Spirit of God. And we see this happening, Acts 21, the, the prophets, the daughters of, of Philip who were pro prophesying. What about um, in the early church, was there, were there teachers? Were there people who, who served alongside Jesus as deacons and apostles? And, and, and I say, yes, there were. I'm going to give you three names. One is uh, the name Priscilla, and we can read her story in Acts 18, and then also in Romans 16, and also in 2 Timothy 4. By the way, Romans and 2 Timothy are both, are both written by Paul, so who's the writer of 1 Timothy. So what he says there needs to kind of match what he's saying over here in 1 Timothy. So in Acts 18, we read of this ministry couple named Priscilla and Aquila, and in the Bible, Priscilla's name is always mentioned first which is totally out of the norm. Normally, it was the guy's name first and the girl's name second. So uh, almost every scholar would believe that, that Priscilla had prominence in this relationship. And they taught a man named Apollos, 
who was a significant early church leader on some important aspects of Christian theology. And, and so when we get to Romans chapter 16 and also Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, we see that, that Paul now comes back over and he affirms Priscilla and Aquila for their good work in teaching and leading. Second name is a, a person named Phoebe in Romans chapter 16. And I, I put this one up on the screen, I think. Yeah, so it would be worth you opening up your Bible if you, if you have one here because your Bible might say something different and I want to point out a difference here. Uh, Phoebe is mentioned as a deacon leader in the church. And it says in, in Romans 16, 1 and 2, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church. Now, some of your Bibles will, will have that. Instead of deacon, they'll say servant. I don't know if you have it there. So the Greek word here is diaconus, which, which um, means deacon. And it's translated deacon every single time in Scripture when it relates to a man. But when it came to a woman, they translated it as servant. That is a theological bias, not an interpretation bias. So they're actually changing things based on the lens that they're looking through. Likewise, that term, uh, she has been a, the benefactor uh, of many. Your translation might have, she's been a great help. Uh, very different things because that term, benefactor of many, uh, is the Greek word there is talking about um, a minister, an overseer, an officer. And so there's much more weight into it, and Paul's actually affirming her of the position she held in a leadership role in the church. Then, thirdly, there's uh, someone who you might not have heard of, and there's a reason for it, and that is Junia in Romans chapter 16. And so in the version I have, which is simply the NIV, it says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding amongst the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, in older translations, again, they took some interpretive skill and they, they changed that to the masculine form, which is Junius. And now, more recent research in, in scholars, people like Scott McKnight, if you know some of those names, there's a whole book, it's, it's called The Lost Apostle, and it's Junius. You can look it up online and stuff. And, and some well-written people that say, this was a female name, this was a female apostle who was part of the family of God. And she was in prison with Paul, served alongside him in some form that she was in prison. So however you want to, 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 to couch it, she was a significant player in those things. So um, what I'm saying here is in view of the entirety of Scripture, which is the creation story, the fall and what happened because of that, the example of the life and ministry of Jesus, the book of Acts in the New Testament church, and Paul's personal recommendations of women in various roles, we, we might see the text that we're looking at a bit differently. And so I know my time's running out, and I promise I'm going to be very quick now as I actually go back to the text, and I'm going to walk you through some of these things. 1 Timothy 2.11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, although that might sound demeaning to women, um, it actually is not. And lots of times, you know, women focus on the second part of that verse, which is, what do you mean quietness and submission? when they should be focusing on the first part, which is a woman should learn. You see, what's happening here, I think, is Paul is actually inviting women to come and sit under the teaching, something they were never able to do before, and learn and grow in their faith. And then some uh, scholars would say that word silence doesn't mean, like, sit there, say nothing, be quiet. It actually means it's more of a demeanor of your spirit. In other words, it's, it's as all learners should do, we sit in quiet, silent submission you know, to the person who is teaching. And I'm thankful for that. Can you imagine this morning as I was talking and that you'd just be jumping up and saying things and screaming around or whatever else? It'd be very distracting, right? That's not quiet submission. I'm not saying, you know, you're beneath me or whatever else. It's just saying that there's, there's an order. There's, there's a, a common courtesy of what we're doing here. And, and a lot of scholars are saying, you know, Paul is opening up the door here, and he's saying, hey, but there's a, there's a way we go about doing this. Okay, 2 Timothy 2, 12. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, here, Paul seems to uh, very clearly exclude women from any role in ministry leadership, and certainly towards men. But as we saw in the examples of Priscilla, Phoebe, and Junia, and others, this is actually not the case. And so, again, there are people that would disagree with me on this, just so you know. They would use some of the same scripture, and their view of it would be different than mine. And, I'm not, and so I want to be careful what I say here, but, but I, I don't believe that Paul is banning all women for all time to teach in the church or to exercise godly spiritual authority over others, including men. You know, Galatians, again, in the new order says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male or female. You are all one under Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, and he says, now each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And then he says at the end of a section, all of these are the work of one Spirit in the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one as he determines. So are there, are there women that have the gift of teaching? Yeah. Are there men that don't? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, are, are there, you know, are there women that have the gift of leadership? Yes. I mean, those are spiritual gifts. And so, so we would say that the, the sometimes gifting can also serve the function as well. Um, so if, if this is not a universal, universal timeless principle, then why does Paul say what he says? And this is where I think some context comes in. Um, do you remember why Paul was writing the, Ephesian, the pastoral epistles to Timothy? It's because there's heresy that was creeping in and weakening the church in Ephesus. And again, um, what, what some scholars or many scholars are saying is the thought is that some of this false teaching was gaining access in the church through the women who did not know the Scriptures well enough to determine what was right and what was wrong. And so Paul, as a way to protect the church, is actually prohibiting women from teaching until they become more, more knowledgeable about that. There's the word uh, assume, authority. And again, uh, you know, I do not permit a, man to, a woman to assume authority over a man. Uh, the Greek word that's used there is interesting. It's only used one time, and it's here. And, it, and it's authentane. And this is what it literally means. It's not just exercising authority. It's to try to control, dominate, and domineer. It's uh, independently assuming authority over other people. Uh, others. Now, I'll just make a comment here. Anyone, men or women, who comes into your life or to my life or the church's life that demands to be heard, that demands to have authority, that demands these things, how do you feel about that? I, I know how I feel. My, my guard goes up and going, like, I don't care who you are. This is not the time and place. And what he's saying here is that this is something that, that people are, are forcing their authority upon others. They're abusing their authority, and Paul is rebuking them for that. 2 Timothy 13 14. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the, the one deceived. He was the woman. Okay, so what's all this about? Now, the people on the complementarian side will say, see, when you look at this passage, because, because Paul goes back to something that is unchanging the creation story, this, this pulls out the cultural practices and says this is for, actually for all time. Now, my, my view of this is just a bit differently. I think this is more about responsibility and authority. So let me ask you some questions here. Um, in the creation story, who was deceived first? Eve, right? That's what it says in the Scripture. Who sinned first? Eve. Who did God hold accountable? Adam. Through one man's sin entered the world, so all have sinned. You see, the issue was that, that God had made Adam responsible or accountable for things, and he uh, negated that. Again, women, if, if you don't like what I'm going to say next, my address is wes at ebenezerbaptist.ca. <laughs> and um, 
but, but I still think there is spiritual leadership. And I think that, that God has given me spirit, given me the, the responsibility and is going to hold me accountable for the spiritual leadership in my home and in my church. That does not mean that Brenda does not have spiritual leadership. There have been times in our lives because of my schedule or because of whatever else where I think she's been a better spiritual leader than I have for our family. But in the end, I think ultimately, God is not going to hold her accountable for what happens in our family. He's holding me accountable. Right? There, there, is, there is authority there. And I think what he's saying here is that there is authority, and don't neglect that. You can't sit in the background and just wipe your hands and go, it doesn't really matter. And then the last verse, which is a great verse for me to end on as a guy. But women shall be saved through childbearing if they continue to, in faith, love, and holiness, and with propriety. Worship team, if you would want to come up here just as I'm finishing up here, it'll just be a second. But um, what it's saying here, it, it's not saying that, that you're saved through childbearing. Because if you never have a kid, then you can't be saved. There are two main lines of thinking on this. One is, is that it's through the woman that, that Jesus, the Savior of all mankind, was born. And so we're saved through that. The other one is a little bit less you know, spiritual in that sense. It's saying that, that um, it's not talking about salvation as our own eternity, but it's saying that, that you're going to be renewed or restored in your life through the act of having kids. And, and your greatest joy and your greatest purpose can be, and meaning in life can be found when we live according to God's design. So that is the passage for today. And where does that leave us? Well, as I mentioned, Ebenezer have women in leadership on our board and on our staff team, and we call those who function in a pastoral capacity pastor. We've also had um, women preach, not share, but preach on a Sunday morning. Pastor Grace has done an excellent job, and that may give you an indication of where I land in this area. I say I because there are people on staff that don't agree with me. We're not on the same page, but we walk in harmony. You'd never know it, and it's not, not an issue. It honestly is not. So what I want to say is that, is that regardless of where we land in this area, let's not let a matter like this you know, pull the church apart. Let's seek to keep searching the Scriptures. Let's be willing to submit and obey to what God says to us. Let's celebrate the fullness of God represented in both male and female. And let's understand our roles and gifting and humbly serve others in love in the power and in the grace of the Spirit of God. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this day, and thanks for your word. I pray, God, that you would uh, continue to guide us in all truth. And again, I pray that um, if my thinking or teaching or understanding is wrong, that you would wipe that from us and you would correct us. We, we first and foremost, want to submit to you and your word in all things. But God, help us to be seekers of truth and seekers of your word, and may we walk in harmony together. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.